Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. My name is Antonio Munoz, and today we are thrilled to have Matt Miller join us. Matt is founder and CEO of Embroker, a company that is fundamentally improving the way insurance works for businesses. Matt started his career working for Bain & Company as a consultant, and from there he moved to the private equity industry with Bain & Capital first for six years, and then as a principal for Hellman & Friedman, where he served on the board of directors of different companies. Matt received his bachelor degree from Duke University and earned his MBA at Stanford University. Matt, welcome and thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Antonio. So we're going to start asking you uh, first some questions about, about the industry and, of course, about M-Broker. I mean, given your background, why you decided to start something in the insurance industry? And, of course, please, again, tell us about M-Broker so that uh, we, we, we can develop it a bit more. Sure, absolutely. So in my case, I think this is uh, perhaps a roundabout answer, but I'll, I'll try to get to the point, which is that I've, you know, working in consulting and private equity, seen a number of people start really incredible businesses uh, in the course of, in the last 15 years. A lot of friends of mine have started really amazing companies. And each time that somebody started a company and it was successful, I would look back and I, I would think like, wow, that person was, you know, in just the right place at the right time. And then the next time it was the same thing. It's like, well, they were really great, but they were just the right person and, and the right place at the right time. And I thought that that was perhaps, you know, an ex explanation of the success. But I think as time went on, I realized that it, it was the opposite, that being the right place at the right time was a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. That, you know, it, to actually build something, you had to be in the right place at the right time. And everything after that was about execution. And so I was always aware that like, if that opportunity should happen to me, I wanted to jump on it. And it, for me, it happened in insurance where I had some exposure to the industry um, by working on the boards of a couple companies in the space and got to work pretty closely with uh, management teams of a large uh, commercial uh, broker and really start to understand the industry both as it currently works and uh, as I thought it would evolve in the future. Uh, and that really positioned me quite well uh, for starting something that I, I thought could help catalyze that change. And, and that's really what, what Embroker is. It was started really to create a, a very new system of insurance that's based on technology, but also that, that pairs technology with expertise, um, but provides just a fundamentally better way for businesses to uh, access risk management products of all kinds. Um, so I left my career in private equity uh, about two and a half years ago to found the company and have been running hard at it ever since. Great. And um, I mean, I'm pretty sure based on what you said that your experience in the private equity industry, I mean, dealing with insurance companies, of course, was very helpful. Could you give us two particular examples of ways in which those years at, I mean, at Bain & Capital and, and, and Hellman Friedman were helpful to launch and, and right now operate and broker? Yeah, sure. I think for me, it was certainly helpful in the context of really getting to understand the space and the industry uh, at a, uh, as well as I could without actually having operational experience in, in it. But you know, specifically for me, I think one of the things that was formative was uh, at Hellman and Friedman, uh, the company that we were uh, that we acquired during my time there, which is uh, you know a very large. Uh, commercial broker called Hub International. Um, I spent some time uh, doing M&A, actually, for the, for the company. Uh, Hub is a very active acquirer, as are a lot of mid-market brokers. And we were doing probably 30 or so deals a year, um, sometimes more. Uh, and I was involved in a lot of them. Uh, they were mostly small deals of, of local uh, uh, 
insurance agencies all around the U.S. And sometimes I would fly around uh, meeting the management teams with Hub's management team to help uh, work on the deal and due diligence and, and try to close the transactions. And I always found that part actually really amazing of just getting to speak to people that had been running this business, oftentimes their family businesses for, you know, 30, 50 years, second or third generation um, that were selling, you know. And they it was helpful really to have those conversations in order to understand, you know, at the very ground level, uh, what made the business work, you know, what were the opportunities that people saw in front of them, uh, what were the threats that they were concerned about, uh, what worked well, what didn't work well, and just, you know, to hear it from people that had spent their entire lives doing it time in and time out. And I think that really helped me get a better sense of w w what I thought could be uh, a big uh, opportunity in the space and, and how to build the business accordingly. We understand that you are a poor broker, uh, and, and then you pursue the brokerage role rather than the license one. Um, is this correct? And, and if this is correct, do you envision a broker becoming a licensed carrier at some point in the future? Um, so, you know, I think about it in terms of uh, the path that we're pursuing is built on a strategy that, that has some analogs in other parts of disruptive industry change. Uh, and I think about Amazon specifically and the maxim of starting from the customer and working backwards. Uh, and, and from my end, that, that had always been clear to me that, that what really I thought was the most important part of catalyzing the change in the industry is that so much time and effort had gone into rethinking or, or tinkering around the edges with like the existing industry structure of, of saying that you know we could maybe optimize this or tweak that but really what we needed was you know ground up rethinking and that would take time and capital and you know, a significant amount of energy and so like where do you start with that like so for us the answer has always been let's start with the customer but let's start as close as we can to the customer and truly understand you know what it is they need how can we make their lives better and then from there, we can work backwards and go you know, step by step by step and really focus on, on improving everything we can about the entire process, but again, from the perspective of the customer. And so I think that that, that will be a journey that takes us years and where it ends in the value chain, <laughs> we'll see. I think it could go pretty deep down, but fundamentally we're very focused on tying everything we do in terms of improving uh, the experience and the overall product for the customer. It's actually good to to speak about Amazon today. It's a good example with the with the acquisition of Whole Foods. I'm pretty sure you were also surprised with this movement. And and on that end, of course, we hope that you can you can follow the same successful the successful path. Uh, and to, before we go into the funding strategy, which is uh, very interesting, the way the, the way you guys have have proceeded during the last uh, months. Uh, in which areas of, of the insurance technology space do you think uh, the largest opportunities are? Yeah, so I think overall it's clearly insurance is a space that uh, has a, a number of attractive opportunities and places to um, innovate and add value. I think overall uh, people mis, uh, underestimate you know, how hard it is, actually. I think they, they, they see a space that, that's old and... Um, archaic and the perception is and I think people have a mistaken per perception that it's easy to go in and, and create change and, and start to do things differently. Um, I, I think it's the reality is, is different which is that it's clearly a, a great opportunity overall in the space but that uh, for a lot of things and particularly what we're doing uh, it falls into the category of, of you know hard things being really hard <laughs> and that's obviously a stupid maxim but it's sometimes the only way to explain it. 
And, you know, we think about it in the sense of both how do you want to spend your time and energy as, as an entrepreneur? Um, you know, do you want to, there's certainly easier ways to make money. I can tell you that. <laughs> but from, from my end, it's always been, I've been attracted to hard problems and this is, you know, one of the hardest. Um, I think when you look though at enduring sources of value creation, they're almost always fall into the category of, of doing really hard things well. Uh, and that's the perception that, that I use to look at the overall industry and say, you know, where are there opportunities to improve things and, you know, where are there spaces that have changed the least? And I think the big picture is that the entire insurance ecosystem and value chain will become dramatically more efficient over the next 10 years. I think it'll be really a step change function. Uh, and you can look at any specific piece of that, and I think that the, it will start to perhaps blend together uh, and the, you know, the, the cutoff between what, where one thing starts and where another thing ends will be less defined than ever. But as long as people can find opportunities to do one thing and do it extremely efficiently and work with other counterparties that can provide a, you know, a high quality, efficient experience all the way down to the end customer, that it doesn't matter you know, that there's a number of innovations I think that will happen in claims and underwriting uh, in distribution uh, in the way that we uh, access capital markets itself that will all be, I think, transformative for the industry, but it, they all need to, I think, work together in a way that allows for the product to actually work and function in a highly regulated space. Moving now to funding strategy, uh, we understand that you had a very successful seed and Series A rounds, and they were also quick. Uh, what was your main strategy behind these movements? Uh, yeah, I'd say my strategy was just uh, trying to, to get money to run the business. <laughs> I don't know if it was more well thought through than that. Um, I think that uh, you know fundraising really uh, is something that at first, it's kind of an unnatural act where, but you, you know, you learn as a founder and as an entrepreneur, I think, you know, you learn to get better at, at how to manage a process and how to um, speak to investors. I think my background as an investor certainly helps me uh, speak to investors and, and, you know, create a compelling case for them. Um, but I think it's always, like, what, what truly what always resonates when you're raising money is, do you have a compelling vision? Uh, can you get people excited about that vision? And do you really, really believe in it? Because I think that if you have a vision and you know, you're selling somebody and it's not really what you believe, uh, it, it's always easier to tell that than, than one would think. And I, I advise entrepreneurs always like, don't, don't sell anything. Just if you're excited about something, then go raise money and let your excitement shine through. It's, I think people make the mistake of trying to strategize and plan too much. Um, I think some of that is necessary, but ultimately, you just really need to, to be excited for what you want to create and let people get excited with you. That's actually a good piece of advice. And um, while applying for a carry license is very capital intensive, uh, applying for a brokerage one, it is not. Uh, however, it has uh, other challenges as well that can be capital intensive too, like uh, distribution. Can you help us understand uh, better how are you allocating now your capital? And resources. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that uh, you know the model that we're pursuing, which is more of a full stack approach to building a startup, uh, is certainly um, more capital intensive than, than just trying to, to build one one component of it. Uh, it's harder. It's more operationally intensive. It's more capital intensive. Um, and so I think when you look at businesses that are more capital intensive, you need to be confident on a number of things. 
you need to be confident, A, that you can raise capital well, that, that you, you know, won't have problem funding the business, and B, uh, that you can allocate capital effectively. And I think um, in our specific situation, uh, I, we've been lucky to have a great um, group of investors that are very supportive of the business. I think you know, we'll continue to look for high-quality, value-added investors that can support what we want to create. I think it's also helpful that you know markets overall are tremendously excited about the idea and the concept that we're working on. So there's a lot of support from the investor community, certainly. Um, but in terms of allocating it, I think it, it it's always, for us at least, we've differentially weighted on spending uh, time and capital uh, on R&D first, really focusing on product, uh, less on um, our own like marketing or, or sales or distribution yet. I think that there will come a time where that, that emphasis shifts and we do put more uh, time and capital on, on trying to uh, market and, and sell the product more broadly. But I think in a space that's as challenging and complicated as the one that we're playing in, uh, really what, what is our competitive advantage is our R&D and our ability to innovate and our ability to create new products because that's actually what's different about us. That's what uh, the industry does not have. Um, so I think about it as doubling down on, on what makes you strong and really focusing on it until you get it right. And at that point, then think about, you know, how you can really grow and rapidly scale the business. And so in order to build that product and before you can actually go to market in an effective way, would you would you recommend future entrepreneurs in the insurance technology space to spend as much time as needed to raise a sufficient amount of capital even before starting? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's. The, I would recommend even before that, you know, spending time is the right question. I would say, but spending time in the industry, I think, is important. Um, you know, before you even think about raising capital, especially if you're someone that has never worked in the industry before, I, I think it is incredibly important to spend at least a year or two, you know, hopefully longer, you know, in the space and, and understanding the reason why things work the way that they do. Um, things working the way that they do doesn't mean that necessarily that they should work that way. And obviously there's a great number of opportunities to change that. But if you don't really fundamentally understand at a very deep and granular level uh, why they work that way, then it, it's actually hard to build anything that's compelling as, a, as an alternative. Um, but in terms of raising capital, uh, I think that it really, it depends a little bit on the model that you want to create. Um, but in general, it probably is good advice to assume that things will take a lot longer and cost a lot more than you expect. I think that's true in general for startups, and it's especially true in this space and industry. Um, and so I think you need to prepare for that and understand that uh, you know it's going to be a very, very long journey, uh, and it'll probably cost more than you think. Uh, it's also important to communicate that to investors. Uh, I think when I've been fundraising, I've always been very upfront and almost try to scare people away. I was like, this is really hard. It's going to take a really long time, uh, and no one's ever done it before. <laughs> and you know, the people that are still left after that and those that are excited about it are those that I think will be more likely to support you, uh, you know, when you do uh, take longer than you think or when you do uh, need uh, extra support to accomplish what you set out to do. Yeah, and that's probably ties back to, to what you were saying before, that uh, you have to be also lucky to find investors that are sub supportive with the value proposition that you are are creating. And, and understand that in this industry, it's going to take some time and some investment until you are ready to, to start selling. But uh, moving on to product, uh, it sounds exciting what you guys are doing. Tell us, tell us please, a bit more about your current positioning. 
Yeah, sure. So we're trying to build essentially a just much better version of uh, business insurance for companies, and we're starting with the, the everything about how companies actually you know buy uh, the coverages that they need to uh, protect their business. And so the traditional way uh, in which people engage uh, with business insurance is through uh, through a broker, is through a pretty traditional broker, and so they would contact a broker and they would uh, go through a pretty arduous process that is uh, entirely offline, that doesn't utilize technology, that takes forever, that's pretty expensive uh, and time-consuming. Um, and we're basically creating something, uh, a version of that that just leverages technology as much as possible, uh, but doesn't necessarily, uh, we don't try to do it without people. Actually, people are a very important part of our model. Uh, I think that providing expert advice on complicated uh, matters of insurance is part of what we can do well and is part of what the value that we can provide. But, you know, we think about combining that expert advice with uh, technology that can really both streamline the process and add value beyond, you know, beyond just streamlining it. It can also add value in terms of uh, helping to collect data and, and arrive at better data-driven answers to what risks a company has and what type of coverages they should have to protect it. I think going forward, that'll be increasingly part of what we do is really work with businesses of all kinds to help them both uh, assess their risk and then find ways to, on one hand, either manage it and, and mitigate it and try to uh, prevent risk, but you know, purchasing insurance as a way to transfer it where and making sure that when they do buy insurance that they have the exact right product and, and they're getting you know, the best price possible in the market. And so we bring together a lot of resources to accomplish that end. So for all those uh, friends and colleagues that are listening to us and that I know that from time to time they go into, into GroupMe or, what, or WeChat or WhatsApp just asking for insurance for these products, now you guys know where you, where you have to go. Um, Matt, there, there are many, many products out there within the insurance industry. Why, why business insurance? Why you decided to go with this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think um, for me, it was really more of a strong personal interest. Uh, I think, as I mentioned, there's a lot of different things that can be done in the insurance space, but I've always been very fascinated uh, by the concept of risk um, and what it means to take risk intelligently and the role of risk-taking in our economy overall. I mean, entrepreneurs are, are by nature risk-takers. Um, but looking back at the history uh, of insurance, uh, a lot of the concepts were invented back in the early days of, of merchant sailing voyages, like the history of Lloyd's. Uh, it's when people needed a way to band together to pool risk and to understand whether or not that they would be able to make an economic return by, by funding these you know, different unknown sailing voyages. And since I was young, I've always been fascinated by that concept. Um, and I think now, looking at the current market, uh, commercial insurance is always uh, the most complicated product and therefore probably the hardest to innovate around, and that also is something that attracted me. Um, it's the most inefficient. So when you look at uh, losses paid out uh, as a percentage of premium, uh, commercial insurance or business insurance overall, as call it you know, 50 to 55% of losses paid out versus personal lines, which have 70 or 75% depending on the year, and so there's just there's a lot more things to do, a lot more change to make, uh, and I think it was uh, all of that aligned for me when I had an opportunity to start something in this space. And it is important. It is, it is actually an important product, uh, and not only just for for the, for the claims, uh, but but some people actually wonder whether these products. Uh, can be really, I mean, be, be sold online without without talking to to anyone. I mean, even millennials like to talk to to attorneys for for important things, right? So, what is your experience yeah. with this so far? 
Um, so yeah, my experience is that's accurate. Like, I, I don't think people want to buy business insurance without talking to anyone. For the most part, I, I'd say on the simplest end of the spectrum, where, where you're buying, you know, a very simple policy for a, a business with, you know, maybe one or two or five employees, where you just need some simple coverages. That that is a lot like car insurance, a lot like personal lines. You know, you can pretty effectively sell that online. For us, we're more interested in things that are more complicated, frankly, um, and places where you can add a lot more value. So thinking about the right way to structure a DNO and ENO you know, policy for a technology company and understanding what their risks are and how we can access capital markets to uh, provide the right set of coverages for that, that company. Uh, and that's really where we spend time on. So you know, we, we always talk to customers when we provide that. Uh, it's important to understand their business and it's important to educate them about the products that, that we think are the right fit for them. Um, but I think, you know, that being said, it's, it's, I think as people in general get more comfortable using technology for different uh, parts of the process, you know, buying behavior will, will change and, and, you know, the trend towards doing more things online and buying more things online, you know, is inexorable. It's only going one way. Um, so I think we'll see more people engaging uh, with digital-only uh, policies and insurance and purchasing. But for the most part, uh, a hybrid approach will be necessary, especially for commercial insurance for the vast majority of businesses. So moving on to, to your go-to-market strategy, uh, I mean, the startup wish zone is to acquire your first customers in a non-scalable way. How did you acquire your first 10 customers for that broker? Uh, so, yeah, I would say it was pretty not scalable. I was actually was myself that <laughs> found 10 companies that were willing to try us. Uh, and I, you know, called a bunch of people I knew and some people I didn't know and, you know, tried to, tried to go sell. And so I was, I was the broker on our first 10 policies and it was an extraordinarily valuable experience. I think, you know, there's no real way to learn, um, the fundamentals of a business, like trying to sell the product yourself. So for us, I think that was pretty valuable. And that's actually another good advice for, uh, for insurers, right? Like the closer you can be to the customer, the better. And we can see many insurance companies nowadays uh, finding like uh, ways uh, to, I mean, going crazy to some extent to to get the closest possible to, to customers. So, what is what is your beachhead market, and and how did you identify it? So, for us, I think early on, um, a lot of our initial customers were technology companies. Um, I think that's something that. Uh, there was a natural fit between early adopters and, and companies that, that were, you know, comfortable uh, using digital tools to, you know, navigate every process of their business. And this had always been an area where, you know, people would complain. It's like, I can do everything else, you know, using software, and how come I can't have any type of engagement with, with this specific thing that I need to do for my business? Um, and so a lot of a lot of our customers were technology companies. Um, and, but pretty pretty soon after after our launch, we found that we were getting traction in addition to technology in, in other areas as well. Um, and one of the areas for us that's been uh, a big source of growth recently has been uh, legal and accounting firms, for example. Uh, and I think that there was a natural fit between um, companies for whom they had a really painful process to, to buy these policies. Uh, they, you know, again, were pretty digitally savvy and, and understood um, that there probably was a better way to do this. And also, we just had a lot of internal expertise on our team of people that, that knew that market as well as, as anyone else in the country. And so that combined, I think, to form uh, a really compelling value proposition that's been very successful for us. 
about advertising uh, in the digital space. I mean, in the insurance in the insurance industry, it's, it's very expensive, very 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 expensive. What are your main takeaways so far? And, and do you think like by polishing and creating like a unique product, are you gonna be able to compete mid to long term with traditional carriers? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I think the you know, we don't do a lot of digital advertising yet, uh, precisely because I don't think the, the ROI on it is very good, um, especially for business insurance. Uh, I think that the the flip side of that, though, is that um, the difference, especially between digital and personal, or commercial rather, and personal lines, is that um, you can depend a lot more on the value proposition of your product and offering, I think, in uh, in commercial insurance rather than personal lines. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, you have somebody that you're selling to for whom it is their job to, you know, manage risk of their company. It is their job to buy insurance. And if you actually have a better version of that mousetrap, like, they should listen to you. Like, it doesn't mean that they will, but they, they probably should. Whereas, you know, for personalized buying a, a home or auto, uh, it's a lot more of a marketing play because it's it's not your job to buy car insurance if you're overpaying by 10 or 15% or you don't have the best product. It's like, you know, that's fine as long as you're meeting the, the legal uh, liability mandates that you have to have. Um, and so th it does make it, I think, in personal lines a little bit more uh, dependent on being able to perfectly solve a crack digital marketing strategy. Whereas I think in commercial lines, because it's more expensive and there's more product there, uh, you can really depend a lot more on just creating something that, that that's better than anything else out there. And what is your strategy uh, to eventually scale the business. Actually, as, as far as we're concerned, you're already thinking about uh, opening new offices, right, in other parts of the country. Is this right? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we, we'll probably, we have offices now in, in San Francisco, in Chicago, in Boston. I think we'll probably add a couple of cities, you know, as needed. I think about actually adding adding offices less as a way to open up a local market per se and more as just access to talent pools. Um, I think all of the offices we've opened have really been around finding the right people and, and getting access to different pools of talent. Uh, and that's that's very much I think about it. Like if we needed to, um, if we found somebody that was a perfect person we had at our company and, and they were in Atlanta, we would open an Atlanta office. Uh, I think that uh, that's very much the way that, that companies will be built uh, from here on out, which is that it's the only thing that really matters is having the right people. Uh, people can and do business uh, over the phone, uh, over video conference. We can travel. You can get on a plane. You can fly. It's easier than ever to work remotely, and it's easier also to sell to customers remotely. Um, but what's not easy is finding the right people and building the right talent. So I would say, you know, about the office question specifically, you know, I think about it as talent. Uh, I'd say the question more generally on how to scale the business um, is another good one. Uh, I, I think we right now are looking at both creating our own um, uh, you know, effective go-to-market strategy. And, and a lot of our growth thus far has been organic. We haven't spent much money on marketing. And so I think that's always a good thing when, when you're getting strong organic growth before you're spending much. It shows you that, that the, the product that you have is resonating and that actually you know, spending money will, should achieve some sort of return. So I think we've been pretty careful to make sure that we were um, – scaling organically and just, uh, you know, that we had product market fit before we start spending a lot of money on marketing. Um, but I think also for us, we have some pretty unique opportunities to um, to scale because we're really the only people that do what we do. We don't really have much in the way of, 
direct competition, at least in terms of people that are creating software uh, for insurance distribution or you know really selling insurance to businesses through technology. Uh, and so because of that, you know, we think about wanting to take our place within the digital ecosystem and work with partners. And so a lot of partners are trying to create uh, basically best in breed solutions for uh, business services. So, you know, whether uh, you're talking about accounting software or payroll software, but trying to partner with other uh, best in breed um, solutions for running the business. And uh, I think that we can plug into those uh, and have started already a couple of them. We'll have some more partnership announcements coming up soon, but really taking our space as just owning the property and casualty component of business insurance in the digital ecosystem. It's our little niche and it's where, where we're very happy to play, but it, it makes us pair very nicely with other um, companies that are uh, providing services to businesses. Back to customer acquisition, Matt. What has been your biggest learning so far? Um, I think one of the things that uh, has, has I would say potentially surprised me, but also uh, has been something that we've just you know taken to heart. <laughs> it's just sounds sounds silly, but like a that is really hard, um, and that you know you can't you, you can't always depend on um, the value of your product coming through if you explain it in your own words. <laughs> so sounds you know sometimes silly and obvious, but the you can have the best product ever, and I know everyone thinks they probably have the best product ever. And but something can be lost when you're too much uh, into your, you know, your team and your own excitement, and you, you start by talking about everything your product does and why it's so much better than anything else. And it's actually not a very customer-centric way to acquire customers, ironically, because you're, you're thinking about it from your own perspective, which is like we spent all this time building this, like we know it's better. Here's why it's better. Um, but that type of explanation oftentimes doesn't resonate. And in order to be effective, you really need to understand why is it better for them specifically? Uh, you know, how will their life be any different? Um, and how can you communicate that in a way that's very easy to understand? Uh, and I think we're still learning how to do this, but it, it's an uh, important approach to uh, you know, acquiring customers is just really, really uh, being able to uh, understand why it's relevant to them and explain it and articulate it very clearly. And what would you recommend that fellow entrepreneurs in the insure tech space could take into account in customer acquisition, other than that it's going to be more expensive than they think? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, this is, uh, again, specifically for our business. Um, it maybe is different in other ones, but, it, and again, it sounds so obvious as to be self you know, totally apparent, but this is for us largely a referral business. It always has been, and to some extent, it always will be. I think the number one way that people find out about which insurance broker they should use is that they ask, you know, somebody else running a business, like, hey, who do you use? Um, they don't Google, you know, they don't look for other sources of online information. Now, maybe some people do, but still, I think to find somebody that they trust, it's largely going by talking to people. Um, and so I think for us, that means that once we have a critical mass of customers, then you know there are some nice virtuous cycles as long as you're providing a great product to those customers. And so I think getting to a critical mass can be hard, and you just really got to focus and, and execute and um, find different ways to, to sell and, and prove value. But I think once you get there, uh, and even on your way there, it's really critically important that you focus on, on always on the customers that you have, uh, the experience that they have, 
um, and make sure that, that they're very happy with your product because ultimately they'll be your best advocates. And I think whenever you're doing something new, it, it's not always the case that everything works perfectly all the time. Um, but I think ultimately what's important is that if there are you know, any slip-ups in service or anything ever uh, is less than a, like a very high bar of quality that, that you aim to meet, that you, know, you personally take responsibility for it and you make sure that it gets fixed as soon as possible. Um, and that's something that I think we've tried uh, very, very hard always to do and, and really just work tirelessly on behalf of our customers and, and to remind them that ultimately the, 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 you know, they're the reason why we're here. Sounds great. How about your network and, and Stanford now in particular? Uh, many of our listeners are currently pushing their MBA studies at Wharton or other schools in the country. Uh, let us know how uh, have you used or uh, found useful your Stanford network uh, for a broker yeah. in particular? So I think for me thus far, uh, it's been primarily useful to me in giving me access to a bunch of other entrepreneurs that I, I kind of know I became friends with during business school. And you know now we're, we're running businesses in, in different uh, spades, different parts of the economy, um, you know, different uh, points in the company's life cycle. But uh, I feel like my network of, of fellow entrepreneurs and people that uh, I knew well is, is very strong. And that's something I'm, I'm extraordinarily uh, valuable, um, thankful uh, for the experience I had because of that. I think as, as you get older, and especially as you when you're running a business, it's so um, personally involved that it can be hard to really build new relationships to the same level as, as the friends you've already made. And so if you happen to have a bunch of friends that are also running companies, then it's, it's all the better. And so that's been something that I've, I've really uh, enjoyed about uh, watching everyone uh, build and grow their company and doing it alongside of them is, is the support and mentorship I've received from uh, my peer group. So actually, my last question for today was, was to ask for any recommendation for current MBA students and, and, and perhaps looking looking like the back like something that you didn't do during your time at the top stuff, right? But it sounds like like make sure that developing those relationships or taking those relationships into friendships uh, is, is something that makes a lot of sense, right? Like looking into the future, uh, especially when you are when you are thinking about to become an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say one more thing I would actually add is that, um, you know, I didn't start a, a business right after GSB. I, I worked in private equity for another four years afterwards. And, uh, you know, I think because of that, I probably you know, could have focused a little more on, on a, a wide range of studies while I was at business school and actually taking more advantage of the resources that I had then. And so that would be the other, I think, piece of advice is that for people, even if you think you're going to go into a career and you're not thinking about starting a company, and I think there's there's a lot of good arguments not to start a company right after business school, but to go in, you know, go into the space and work a couple of years, but it's still a really good time and, and opportunity to um, really participate and take advantage of the resources that, that um, the school offers because uh, you're, you're not going to get another chance like that really to have that much time and that much access to uh, you know, people, peers, educational sources. Uh, and so, yeah, take advantage of it, even if you don't think that uh, you're going to start a business right afterwards. Awesome. Last but not least, Matt, would you be open to have Wharton MBA students or even undergrads as interns, interns or full-time employees even in your company in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're always recruiting. We're, we're growing right now. We have a couple of NBA interns this summer. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're always 
interested in, in speaking to people that, that are uh, excited about what we're building and that, that are interested in becoming a part of it. And so we'd love to hear from you if that's the case. Awesome. Matt, we had a fantastic time talking to you today. Thank you very much and, and good luck. Thank you, Antonio. I appreciate it.